Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. I'll invite you to turn with me this morning to um, the book of Ephesians. I know it's a bit of a switch. We were going uh, methodically through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, I've been jumping all over the place the past few weeks as we've been looking at these five solas that uh, come out of church history, but ultimately we believe come from the scriptures themselves. And uh, and so we've been moving around a bit, but we're going to try to focus in on Ephesians 1 this morning and, uh, and uh, not do too much jumping around from there. So I'll invite you to please stand with me as we read. And uh, we're just going to start Ephesians 1, starting at verse 1, and I will read down uh, to verse 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. And so the, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God remains. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So as we have as mentioned already, um, we have lots of visitors here this, this weekend for Thanksgiving, and I want to welcome you as well, and uh, just pray that you're blessed and, and uh, drawn to Christ this morning. Um, but we've been working through what are sometimes referred to as the five solas of the Reformation, as this year marks the 500-year anniversary since that great movement of God uh, that began. Uh, I mean, it's hard, I mean, of course, God's working through history, but one of the initial points was Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the castle door of Wittenberg, and, and unbeknownst to him, uh, really being the light, uh, the, the match that would strike a great awakening of God's people and a, and a restoring to the pure gospel of God by grace alone. So we've looked at a few already. We've looked at faith alone, um, that we are justified before God by faith alone, not by our works. Last week, we looked at scripture alone, that the Bible alone, these 66 books that we have, the Old and the New Testament, that this alone is God's special revelation to us, 
that this is our final authority of, uh, over all councils, popes, churches. Uh, the scriptures stand alone, and the scriptures alone are sufficient for life and godliness. And so as we move on, we have uh, three left. We have grace alone, which we'll look at today, uh, Christ alone, and then to the glory of God alone. Now, even uh, as, as Patty shared, I think we're often quick to forget that we are part of a great work of God that really began in Genesis, the grace of God upon his people. And all throughout history, here we are in the 21st century. And we need to remember that there are thousands of years before us of God's faithfulness, of God's work among people, of God's opening eyes to the gospel, of God pouring out his grace. And so once in a while, it's healthy for us to look back at our history. And yes, it's messy. Yes, there's controversy. Yes, there's struggle and pain and things we would disagree with. But through it all, we see this thread of God's grace, his faithfulness to preserve a people and to preserve his word for us. And so we think of something like these five solas, it's, it's not that they are originating in the 16th century, but rather they are uh, solidified. For the first time in many years, men began to write out the doctrines of our salvation. And so it was in this time that there was a great increase of writing and explanation for the church as to what the scriptures mean, the unfolding of God's word and the invention of the printing press allowed these writings to, to spread very quickly, uh, kind of like we've experienced today with social media. I mean, you can write uh, whatever you want. You could put a scripture and, and click a button, and in a second, it's available to the entire world. Um, it would have been like that for, for this generation with the printing press. And so as we go through these truths, it's not that they are originated you know, by Luther or, Luther or any one of these men, but rather they are resurfaced by God's provision, and these men attest to the same truths that the apostles taught, that early church fathers like Augustine himself taught in the fourth century. So grace alone, um, what does it mean? We hear grace a lot. We see grace in the dollar store. You can buy nice little plaques to hang on your wall, and it'll say, you know, faith, hope, and love, or sometimes grace. Or, and we see these words around, but what do they really mean, and what do they mean when we talk about the grace of God? Certainly, we're, I, have, I have no uh, hope of exhausting this subject this morning. Uh, it will take us a lifetime to search out the beauties of this truth of this goodness that God has given us, it will take us an eternity to search out these glorious truths. And even in eternity, we will only really begin scratching the surface of an infinite God. So this morning, um, from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, I want us to see that grace or the unmerited favor of God is a work of the triune God on our behalf. The unmerited favor of God is a work of the triune God on our behalf. Now, before we get into this, I just need to, uh, for a moment, remind you of the big picture. Because when we talk about grace, if we don't see the big picture, uh, it, it won't be amazing. 
It won't be surprising. It won't be, it won't be unique. It will be somewhat expected if we don't remember what has happened uh, prior to Paul writing. So, you realize that for us in North America, the air that we breathe is humanistic. What does that mean? It means that our culture worships man as God. Our culture has set up man as the chief end that we are to exist for. And if we need to sacrifice our children on this altar, we will do that. If we need to uh, re-identify what it means to be man and woman, we will do that on this altar. If we need to run over other people that we would elevate ourselves, we will do that in this culture. It is the culture that worships man. That's what we breathe in. And uh, for your children, you need to be aware of that. You need to give them a heavy dose of the biblical worldview so that they understand who we are uh, before a holy God. But not only that, uh, that's a problem for us. We also, I think, Christianity today, by and large, uh, and I've been guilty of this, has adopted the view of a man from history named Pelagius, and, and it's called Pelagianism. And all that he taught is when, when a man like Augustine taught in the 4th century, grace alone, uh, God's grace must rescue us from our sinful nature inherited from Adam, he said, no, we don't need rescuing because our nature is fine. We just need a bit of moral cleanup. We just need a little bit of renovating, a little bit of, you know, instruction on how to please God, and then we can take it from there. He denied that we are born with a sinful nature, that we are by nature sinners, and that view of man is, is uh, very alive and well today, that we think that we are generally good people. You ask the average Christian today, do you think that people are generally good or are we sinful by nature? Most would answer you probably, well, I think, you know, we're pretty good. We just sometimes get misled and we do bad things. But that's not what the scriptures teach. Uh, later in this letter, Paul would remind the Ephesians Uh, the the Athenians, I guess would be the word, Um, that they were dead in trespasses and sins, that they were children of wrath, that they were sons of disobedience. You must understand that as the backdrop of God's grace, or it won't make any sense and it won't be needed. If all we need is a good instructor, then Jesus didn't really need to come. And maybe, you know, some other prophet would have done just fine. But if what we need is a new nature, if what we need is a resurrection, if what we need is regenerating to life from death, then Christ alone could fix this problem. This is what the scriptures teach, that in Adam we have all died, that as a result of his sin we have fallen into a state of rebellion And while we have the freedom to make choices, we are bound to this sinful nature. And so even the choices that we make are governed by this nature. We see this in children very, very young. From the moment of conception even, David says, I was conceived in sin. Our children, if they had the ability, I'm sure, would have killed most of us off by now as infants because of the rage that sometimes we see expressed. This is that nature. This is the backdrop to God's grace um, one, one writer, Carl Truman, summarized our, our state before God as this. He said, to have sinned in Adam is not simply to have followed a poor example. 
It is to be subject to a fundamental change in the human relationship to God and to self. It involves a corruption of human nature that came about directly as a result of Adam's disobeying God. He goes on to say, I love myself rather than God. I am ignorant of the good, and I will die because of the actions of Adam long ago in the Garden of Eden, confirmed here and now in my own twisted psychology and inability to love God as I should. Now that seems very dark, that seems very gloomy, that seems very inappropriate for Thanksgiving weekend, doesn't it? But if we don't understand who we are, then we cannot understand the grace of God and the goodness of God and the solution to our problem because God has indeed given us a great solution. And I encourage you, even as we relate to one another and and as we discipline our children, we can't just tell our children to stop it. If all we do is tell our children to stop it, they will begin to think they actually have the ability to to obey the law, to actually fulfill what we're telling them. Rather, you say, stop it and listen to me, son. You need to understand you are a slave to your sin. You You are after your father, Adam, and unless you repent and flee to Christ, you will be consumed by it. And you point them to Christ. Don't give in to your anger, son. Don't lash out at your brother and hit him because he's upset you. Ask God to give you a heart of love for your brother. And that's how this begins to change the way we look at our children, at one another, at our society. Um, I know many of you were following the story of the horrific shooting that took place in L.A. this past week or last weekend. And you you can't imagine the dread of being with a crowd of people and really nowhere to to run, nowhere to hide. And a man opens fire on this crowd with automatic firearms. And all week long, you've been seeing article after article, what is the motive? Why did he do it? Why did he do it? And they're frustrated because they cannot figure it out. But could you imagine coming to them and saying, you know what? The primary problem is he is a sinner. He is dead in trespasses and sins. And I'm not saying there's not other motives at times going on, but foundationally, the 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 crime and the hatred and the killing is flowing from this nature in which we are born. That is the ultimate source. And there is only one solution, and that is the grace of God. And so let us turn then and let us fix our eyes for a moment upon the beauty and the glory of what Paul is telling us in light of our current situation as humanity. First of all, we see then, uh, as I said, that that grace, uh, another word or a definition of grace, a simple one, is just unmerited favor, unmerited favor. So the unmerited favor of God is, is worked by the triune God. And so let's just see at the remainder of our time how each person of the Trinity is involved in this grace that we receive, the grace by which we are saved, the grace alone, which is the answer to humanity's problem. And so first of all, we see that God the Father is the first one Paul begins to uh, unpack for us, his role in this salvation. So 
So first of all, we see that grace is according to the Father's design and eternal plan. Grace is according to the Father's design and eternal plan. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, Paul tells us that in Christ he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his will. Now, this gets very heavy, and this is how Paul opens his letter. This is the greeting to the church uh, in, in Ephesus. We must understand that the grace of God is according to the will of the Father. And we must not cheapen this grace by saying, well, I think I've contributed something to the grace. I think I maybe was, you know, a little bit more spiritual than my neighbor or maybe a little bit more appealing, a little bit better at Bible memory, and that's why God has set his favor upon me. That would be to cheapen what Paul is saying. He's saying the Father, he is the only one who has authored this salvation, who has chose to set his grace upon us. And just in case we think that this is because of something that he saw in us, Paul says it's before the foundations of the world. Before God creates anything, he's already purposed to set his grace upon his people, upon those who receive Christ. God has chosen them that they would be holy and blameless before him. And some might say, well, maybe God just foresaw what I would do and act according to that. Maybe he just foresaw my decision and then he responds to that and, and chooses who to save. But again, in case we miss it, Paul says, according to his will, in verse 5, according to the purpose of his will, the Father has determined to rescue a people for the Son, to set His grace unmerited upon them. Now, I know that these doctrines are, throughout church history, have been difficult for some. They've been the source of controversy. But I plead with you to hear the beauty of what Paul is saying. He is telling us that our the grace that we receive is not dependent on us, which is good news, because if it's dependent on Aaron Hale, then I'll be out of grace tomorrow. What, one struggle, and I'm, and I'm out, if this grace depends on me. But if it depends upon God, then I am secure, and I have hope, and I have persevering strength in Him. And it's not just that God determined that we should be cleared of all charges and then let, you know, go on our way that, okay, take the sentence off. He's no longer guilty. He's now innocent. He can go on his way and, and live his life. It's not just that. Look what else Paul says in verse 5, that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, ladies, don't feel left out here when Paul says sons. You want to be adopted as sons. Why? Because in this culture, it was the son 
who inherited the name. He inherited the family uh, inheritance. The, the daughter got a dowry and then was sent off with her husband. To be adopted as sons is to inherit everything the father has. It is to come in the full inheritance. It is to wear the family ring. It is to, to sit at the family table. It is to bear the family name. This is what God the Father has purposed to do according to his grace. And it is glorious news for us who are born in the corruption and death of Adam. Why would God do this? Because he has purposed to display, Paul says, his glorious grace. You see what he says, that's according to his will, but it's to the praise of his glorious grace. Um, If you think about the grace of God, it's not that grace, the grace of God is an attribute of God. It flows out of his attributes. He is gracious, but his grace can only be displayed to an unworthy people. Do you see that? He can't give grace to someone who is righteous in the sense that he redeems them. Um, Adam, prior to the fall, did not require the grace of God because he was righteous, he was holy. He didn't deserve condemnation. After the fall, God begins extending grace. And so you might ask, well, why? One of the greatest questions that humanity has wrestled with is, why is there evil? And One answer on on a human level, of course, is this is the result of Adam's sin. Adam's sin brought the curse upon humanity and Eve, and we who are born in this nature also um, act according to our father Adam. And so there is a sense which we could say sin has done this. This was not the original design. But at the same time, we can also say God purposed to show his grace to a watching world, to angels in heaven. And so God, knowing that Adam was going to disobey him, that an entire race was going to turn their back on God, God purposed, I want to display the glory of my grace, the goodness of my heart to forgive the guilty. And God, as Paul said, has purposed to do that through you, through those who believe upon Christ, who who turn from their sin and are born of the Spirit, God has purposed to display His grace. This was not given to the angels. They fell. We told a third of them in Revelation were swept from the sky with the great serpent, and there is no forgiveness for them. There is no display of grace to the angels. And we read earlier, what is man that you are mindful of him? God has purposed that it will be humanity, it will be the offspring of Adam, who I will show my grace, my goodness, my kindness, even though they don't deserve it. This is breathtaking when you start to realize, first of all, who we are because of our sin, what we deserve, the wrath of God, but then that God would not only forgive us, but count us as sons and daughters to sit at his table forever and ever. There is no greater source of comfort for the Christian. Listen to what Paul says about this, and then we will move on to look at the work of the Son. Paul in Romans 9, 
13 says, As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, this is from, remember, Moses is on the mountain and he, he asks to see the glory of God. He says, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, okay, Moses, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass before you and I'll, I'll declare my name to you. And so Paul quotes from that moment in the life of Moses and God, as he passes by, declares, I am that I am. And then Paul quotes this next part, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? Now listen to what he says. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has predestined beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God purposed before creating, knowing that sin would come in and corrupt, God purposed to display his grace. And he purposed to display his grace among the children of Adam. And so we rejoice in this kindness of God. Fair would have been all of us condemned to eternal suffering. But God says, no, I want to display my grace. And so then we see this, the second person of the Trinity, the work of the Son. So God the Father ordains and plans to set his grace upon the elect. Christ then purchases and provides the grace through his life, death, and resurrection. Do you see what Paul says? After describing this plan of the Father and this identity of the Christian he says in verse 7, in him, which is referring to Christ, in whom God the Father has blessed us, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. So Jesus Christ comes to purchase the grace that the Father has planned to give us. We talk of free grace, and that's good, and that's right, but we must never forget that ultimately the grace of God is not free. It was the most costly purchase in the universe. It cost Jesus Christ his life. And so while we receive the grace of God as a free gift, the Son paid the price in full. And so Paul says that we are redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. 
The Son is the reason that God can give us grace. He is not, you know, and, and I do this too. I'm, I'm worse than my wife, really. Uh, you know, you tell the children to stop fighting or you warn them, okay, the next, next time you hit your brother, uh, I'm going to spank your bum. And uh, he hits his brother, okay, that is it. This is the last warning. One more time and I am, I'm going to spank your bum. And, and, and my wife will sometimes catch me and say, well, you just follow through with what you said. You know, like he's, he's picking up. Dad's not serious. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing this. See how many times he'll say it. But that's not God. God isn't in the Old Testament saying, okay, last warning, and then that's it. What is God doing? We're told in Romans 3, 21, that he passes over the former sins. Why? Because he's looking to the cross, and at the cross he is saying, this sin will be atoned for. I can give grace to Adam. I can give grace to Noah. I can give grace to Abraham. I can give grace to David, because Christ is going to pay for that grace at the cross. And so all of the grace that God extends is not uh, an indifferent parent just refusing to discipline his children. He pours his wrath, the fullness of his anger against our disobedience onto the Son, and there the grace of God is purchased for us in what Christ has done. There's a beautiful example of of this, and we're already out of time. But... um, just make reference to it in Genesis 15 you have God establish the covenant with Abraham and God tells Abraham okay I want you to take these animals and cut them in half and this was a common way of establishing a covenant in that culture and then what typically would happen is both parties of the covenant would pass through the animals and what they are saying is if I break this covenant let it happen to me as it has happened to these animals let me be cut to pieces if I break this covenant. But you know what happens in Genesis 15? God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And Abraham wakes up. And it is God alone who passes through these animals. As though to say, Abraham, when you break this covenant, I myself will be torn to pieces for you. I myself will take the full punishment of breaking this covenant. And so on the cross, God the Son is torn to pieces because of our disobedience and His righteousness is imputed to us, the grace of God through Christ. And this is what I was trying to show the children with the shirt that my son wanted back and the white shirt that because of what Christ has done, because he has taken the wrath, he is able then to give to us his own righteousness. And it is the Son who purchases this grace by which we are saved. Turn for a quick moment to Hebrews 10. Uh, Hebrews so beautifully shows us how the whole sacrificial system was pointing to Christ and what he would do. And I encourage you to sit down and read through Hebrews sometimes. Start to finish. Uh, There's something about reading a book, start to finish in a sitting. I know it's sometimes, some of the longer ones, it's hard to do that, but a book like Hebrews, you you can do that in a few hours. But Hebrews 10, verse 1 says, 
For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased, otherwise they, sorry, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And down to verse 11, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so the entire sacrificial system passes away as Christ, the reality, dies on a Roman cross and three days later is raised again. And do any of the kids know what happened on the third day or young people? What happened in the temple on the third day when Jesus rose from the dead? What broke? The temple? Kind of. Part of the temple. Which part? A big hanging part. The stone rolled away and the curtain that separated the, the inner court to the Holy of Holies, the holy place to the Holy of Holies, that curtain was ripped from top to bottom and the price was finished and the sacrificial system was ended. And so we see the Son who purchased our grace and then we'll close just, we won't, get, we won't be able to uh, expand on this much, but just look what Paul says then about the Spirit Father planning and purposing, electing the Son, purchasing, obtaining the grace. And then we see down in uh, verse 12 of Ephesians 1, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Here again is this theme, the praise of God's glory through those whom He has set His grace upon. In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe. Now listen, uh, we talk about the, God, the predestining of God, and some people will say, well, okay, if that's what God does, then I guess I can just sit on my hands and do nothing. But how is it that they believed? It was the word of truth, the gospel, and so what happens is God calls us to go with the gospel and to proclaim the good news. Why? Because that is the means through which he works in the hearts of his people. And so when these Christians in Ephesus, uh, when these ones who God has said, these I will set my grace upon, they hear Paul come and they hear Paul proclaim this good news and, and they hear it, we're told that they were sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so while the Father plans and ordains and the Son accomplishes, it is the Spirit who applies and who enables us not only to believe and to receive this grace, 
but to abide in it, to persevere until the end according to God's plan. Jesus said that all whom the Father has given to me will come to me, and I will lose none of them. Why? Because of Aaron Hale's you know, resolve to press on and pull myself up on my bootstraps? No, because it is according to the plan and the purpose of God, and it is enabled not by me, but as His Spirit works in me and in you, we persevere and we press on. And so I encourage you this morning, give God thanks for this grace. May our hearts understand what has happened. It is as though we were all on death row, justly chained, waiting our day of execution. And God the Father comes in and He says, okay, you, you're going to be my son. I'm going to set my grace upon you. And His son goes out the door and He is put to death in your place. And the Spirit of God opens your eyes to see the beauty of this. And then He says, now go and proclaim this message until all the nations have heard, and then I will return, and I will bring you to myself. And so let us labor. And if you have not placed your faith in Christ, don't look at yourself and say, you know what, I'm too bad, I'm too far gone, my sin is too great. Paul says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The sacrifice of Christ was sufficient to cleanse the worst of sinners. So don't use your sin as an excuse, but rather come and receive the grace of God. And um, I'm going to close with prayer, and then uh, as a wonderful picture of this work, which I love, uh, Hannah Lazilstra is going to be baptized. So uh, I'll close with prayer, and then the team will come as you sing a closing song as uh, Hannah and I get ready uh, to go into the waters of baptism, and then we will close with that. So I ask you to bow with me now, please, in Jesus' name. Lord God, we confess, Father, that your ways are so far above ours. Lord, and we admit that, Lord, we are often quick to elevate self. But Lord, would you help us to see clearly what has happened, Lord, that we who were objects of wrath, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, with no expectation of grace, no expectation of mercy, God, we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ in heavenly places. And oh God, would you help us to set our mind upon that life which is to come when this flesh is transformed in the twinkling of the eye, when disease and death is no more. God, would you help us press on. And Lord, give us a heart for the lost that we wouldn't cause this grace to make us arrogant, but it would make us brokenhearted for those that have not yet seen it. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.